Welcome to Historias, the Spanish History Podcast. I'm Foster Chamberlain. Today I'm joined by Rodrigo Escribiano Roca, who is a graduate student at the Universidad de Alcalá de Henares and is currently a visiting scholar here at the Center of Iberian and Latin American Studies. And today he's joining me to talk about the idea of Hispanoamerica. So Rodrigo, welcome to the program. Hello, Foster. How are you? Great. How are you doing? Well, very well here in the United States. Happy. Thank you very much for inviting me to the program. It's my pleasure. So I wanted to start out by asking you if you could just tell us a bit about what this term Hispanoamerica actually means and where did the idea first develop? I would say better to talk about a term or a concept. I will prefer to be a little bit more traditional and talk about a set of ideas because it's an idea that is then expressed in very different concepts uh, along the 19th and the 20th century. Because you will you will see uh, authors and people using the term Hispanoamerica, other people will use the concept America Española, other people will use the concept Hispanidad, and each of them have different connotations depending of which one is using the term. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all of them share some uh, main ideas. And I think that they are ideas uh, that come from a long-term process that we can say it begins even in the independence of the Latin American republics from Spain. We should understand them from the Cortes of Cádiz. Uh, Do you know that constitutional that constitutional project in the Spain that was increases because of the war with Napoleon that tried to construct a constitutional national state that unite into a single sovereign parliament to all the Spanish-American subjects and the Spanish subjects of the peninsula. And as you know, that project failed. And it failed uh, mainly because of the interests of the metropolitan elites that they didn't really want to include uh, Americans as, um, you know, equally represented in the parliament Mm -hmm. because they were fearful about that. I mean, imagine an Atlantic Spanish monarchy that was composed by different kingdoms and that was united not by the nationality but by a king. In this case, Fernando VII uh, or Carlos IV when the 18th century was finishing and was beginning the, the 19th century. And then imagine that that monarchy suffered an enormous crisis because of the Napoleonic invasion. And then the thing that used to unite all the territories of this monarchy that was the king they disappeared. And in this moment is when firstly liberals and uh, you know enlightened intellectuals in Spain Imagine a new sovereign state that was united by nationality and by a representative parliament. And uh, in this moment is when, when the conflict emerged. And I think the first, the constitution of 1812 was a constitution for that monarchy. Because a lot of people think about it about the, uh, as the first constitution of Spain. But Spain didn't exist as the national state that we consider today. 
it was a constitution that was that was thought for the old Catholic monarchy, for for the old imperial monarchy. And then, when that project fails, then there are born a lot of new national states: Peru, Argentina, Spain. So we cannot say exactly that Latin American republics were in the get their independence from a, a Spain that was already constituted as a national state. We can talk about an um, um, imperial monarchy that is decomposed in a lot of different new national states, and Spain is one of those. And the thing is that after that moment, uh, after the failure of constructing a new Com Hispanic Commonwealth, then the Spanish politicians and Spanish intellectuals have never forgo forgotten this project, have never forgotten the possibility of union of the new Spanish state with the, Lati with the Latin American republics, with the old uh, subjects of the Spanish monarchy. And if you think about the 19th century, for Spanish have been a terrible century in comparative terms with the 18th century. Firstly, Spain lost their, its international power and prestige, it lost its political stability. So the idea of constructing or reconstructing a political union with the Latin American republics, with the Spanish-speaking world, uh, have been a powerful uh, element of Spanish nationalism and also of a kind of political nostalgia for what could have been, but it was a failure of the, of the constitution of Cádiz. As we're talking about this as kind of a liberal phenomenon, a, a phenomenon that's emerging concurrently with this uh, idea of nationalism. I'm also thinking of the emergence of the idea of race as we understand it today around this time. Does that have to do with this, with the emergence of this idea of Hispano America? No, I think that it is, is coincidental. I mean, I think that they emerge in the same ideological framework because there are a lot of studies about Spanish nationalism. But I think that, that I think that in general studies about nationalism have failed because they only consider the idea of the nation, and they don't consider the semantic field, the semantic uh, schema in which is born. Mm -hmm. A nation is born along with other concepts that are race, that are empire. We shouldn't forget that 19th century was the century of nations only in America. As for example, there are very good studies now of Stefan Berger that shows that in Europe, the 19th century wasn't a century of national states. Most of the states in Europe have still been composite monarchies, imperial monarchies or imperial states. Because for example, think about Spain. Okay, Spain now, it's supposed to be a national community, but it has very important colonies in Cuba and in Philippines and in fact they are included in their sovereignty and, and Spain must construct a justification and nationalism that is related with ideas that, that trans, transcend the national idea and these are the, the ideas of race and of civilization and the idea of race is very important because it permits to Spanish intellectuals 
to talk about a community that was transnational and about historical or even natural unity between the, the subjects that were emancipated in the Latin American republics and this new metaphor of, of the mother country. So the race is a very important element because it generates an idea of continuity and of eternity, even of biological and cultural eternity of a transatlantic community. So it was a, a way of assuring the unity of the, of the Hispanic Atlantic community even after the political break uh, and the political destruction of the, of the Catholic monarchy. So the idea of race was very, very, very important in, in Spanish nationalism and in Spanish Hispano-Americanism. I, I am saying something that maybe will cause me trouble with a lot of historians in Spain because Historians of nationalism in Spain have tended to not to consider the concept of race because they they wanted to show Spanish nationalism as differentiated from colonialism and from imperialistic ideologies. And I think that's not true at all. I think that they are a semantic field that we must uh, understand together. Right. There is not Spanish nationalism without an, an idea of empire and an idea of the Hispanic race and the characters of the Hispanic race that are also connected with the, with the lecture about a Spanish international power and relevance. Okay, so now that we understand a little bit um, about this idea of Hispano America and, and where it comes from, I thought we could talk a little bit more specifically about your research, which um, has to do with these history authors and, and how they use this concept. So I thought perhaps we could start with just if you could give us a little bit of an overview of how Spanish authors in the in the Restoration period were kind of envisioning this Hispano-America. I have chosen to study history because historians were a very important uh, actor in the construction of the idea of Hispano-America because it's an idea that has a lot to do with uh, temporality and with the dim dimensions of the imperial past, the national present, and an imagined imperial future, okay? So in the Restoration we have uh, a lot of authors. When I talk about historians, I talk, you know, it wasn't a professionalized historiography yet. There were a lot of intellectuals that write history, but they also write uh, about politics, and they were also journalists, as for example, well, you know, the great constructor of the Restoration, 
the, the Prime Minister of Spain, Antonio Canovas del Castillo, was a historian and was a historian that wrote a lot about Spanish imperial past and about the discovery. We had also left-wing, well, radical and republican uh, historians as Rafael Maria de Labra that were very implied in the political uh, in the political struggle for uh, the liberation of or the autonomy of the colonies in Cuba and Puerto Rico and were also very implicated in the relationship between Spain and the Hispano-American republics. So I have chosen a historiography to study historiography because I think that this a uh, a symbolic and a political discourse that really structured Spanish politics towards uh, Latin America during this period. And well, what idea did they have? What we can see during the restoration is a nationalist campaigning where the idea of America is recovered in order to imagine a possible international future for Spain. Mm -hmm. Antonio Canovas del Castillo was really clear he was observing how the United States were, were constructing an enormous state, imperial state, with a federal formula. He saw how the German people have unified in a single state. He saw how Italian people did the same. And he was very, very informed about the political processes in the British Empire. And he knew that the Brit some British imperialists wanted to transform the, the Second British Empire in a new federal union. So he thought, okay, if we, if we continue being a little a small state in Europe, we will lose Cuba, we will lose the Philippines, we will lose all the international relevance. And don't forget that he had very, those historians had very Darwinist ideas in their minds. And they thought, okay we are a race we are a decadent race because we don't have nowadays a strong political power so if we continue with this policy of isolation if we if we only have a nationality that comprehend spain and the peninsula we will be extinguished as a race so the solution was america america they construed the idea of the american empire as the most important or one of the most important episodes in Spanish history. They tried to um, construct the idea of the history of Spain as the history of an imperial nation, of an expansive nation, of a nation that have civilized uh, the world, that have expanded Christianity and, and civilizational values. Mm -hmm. And they saw in America not only the, um, the most important thing about the Spanish past, but the most important thing about the Spanish future. They construct the idea that by a new league, by a new confederation with the Spanish-American republics, Spain will be regenerated, will return to be a great power in the, uh, in the Atlantic world. And also they, they thought that if the Hispanic race was united, the social internal problems that were arising during the 19th century as democracy, as social movements, will be controlled. Because a great state of Spanish and Latin American republics that was faithful to the values of the race, and the Hispanic race wasn't a democratical race for these people, uh, would be strong enough to contend all the social contestation. 
and to create a strong uh, Hispano-American elite. So there were a lot of factors that made America a, a central topic in the explanation of a Spanish past and in the imagination of a Spanish future for these conservative elites and for the uh, and for the Republican elites it wasn't so different the difference was that they wanted to read in the Hispano-American history well the history of a purely democratic and Republican people and they imagined that a Republican revolution in Spain will arrive when Latin American republics support that kind of revolution. So everybody in Spain, every political party, every political imaginary needed and used the idea of uh, historical America and the idea of empire because the republicans were in some kind imperialist. The republicans also wanted a republican Spain but a Republican Spain that conserved uh, Cuba and Puerto Rico and Philippines and a Republican Spain that could be a, a great uh, European power and that could conserve its language, its sovereignty against the United States or the Anglo-Saxon powers. So it sounds like just about everyone is, is using this concept. Yeah, more or less. There were people also that, that didn't like uh, the idea of an empire, the little Spaniards, you could call them. As for example, well, obviously you have uh, the Republican tradition that you can find uh, uh, in authors like uh, Fombona or like Pratt, but mainly America was uh, an America and the preservation of empire and the and the extension of empire and the formation of an Hispano-American league was shared by by most of the Spanish elites and by and by different groups you can mm -hmm. also find Marxist intellectuals defending the idea of a Hispano-American community hmm. Only they change some meanings. I mean, uh, for example, if you if you read the the periodical El Socialista, you will find a lot of articles defending the unity of the workers of the Hispano-American world and uh, and a revolution in a Hispano-American scale. So uh, it was very installed, very strong in the imaginary of Spain during this century. So. If these are all the different ideas that people are promoting through this idea of Hispano America, how exactly were they doing that in regards to the history books? In other words, how did these works um, perhaps differ from how we would think of history being written today? We should consider that the communication of historical ideas was different from our own days. I mean, we are very used to monographs. We are very, very used to the typical uh, professional book that is written for the academy and for the reading of history students. And then we have another genre that is the historical novel that is very divulgative, but it wouldn't be normally written by a historian. 19th century and the first moments of the 20th century were different. These historians used to write the textbooks for the university, used to write some monographs, but mostly they write uh, in periodicals that had a lot of, of public relevance. They also used to write in history books for schools. They also used to write uh, in the newspapers. 
and they also used to organize public public performance or public expositions in museums and in commemorations so these ideas of history that um, that was understood as a moral and public science as a moral discourse uh, so it was imagined that history would um, create patriotic feelings and would create patriotic imaginaries in people. So these histories had a lot of divulgation and the process of socialization was very important for these kind of historians. So for example, if we go to, uh, to the Republican liberal network, network of historical communication, you can find, for example, Rafael Maria de Labra, that was this Republican historian that demanded the creation of a Hispano-American community. You can find him telling his histories in the parliament because he was a deputy and a, sen and a senator. You can find him uh, in speeches, in, in lectures in the Ateneum of Madrid. You can find him in public lectures in the central square of Santiago de Compostela. Mm -hmm. they, they wrote in a lot of different languages for a lot of different publics and they were very worried that their vision of history uh, was shared by most of the population, by most of the citizenship. The idea of these people was that the, uh, the present ca could only be explained by the past and that the future could only be predicted by the understanding of the past. So um, their historical visions tend to be holistic. They tend to, and they wanted two things, two co contradictory things that are related with the concept of race and with the concept of civilization. They wanted to, to express the progress. Mm -hmm. how Spaniards have changed from the times of the conquest to the 19th century progressing mm, being you know better having developing democratic institutions developing uh, a more complex more complex ways of living more complex economical and industrial technologies but they they also wanted to stress the continuity the civilization serves to express the progress and the discontinuity and the change, but race serves to stress the continuity. We are better Spaniards than the ones of the 16th century, but the race, we are of the same race, but we are Spaniards as them. So we share with them some biological, linguistic, moral and political virtues. Mm. We, are, we are in a continuous set. So these historiographical constructions were uh, really moral philosophies in some, in some sense. Really, they were moral philosophies and they were very oriented towards the present and the future. In your work, I thought it was particularly fascinating these visions of the future that actually these historians would put in their work. So I was wondering if you could just give us an example or two of some of these visions of, of the future of uh, Hispano America, these historians saw. It's interesting because, you know, I, I recommend uh, people that are hearing this to read Koselek and also to read Francois Artaud because nowadays I, I use these theories because nowadays we are living a revival of the dimension of the future in historiography and there are a lot of theories that are talking about the importance of the future dimension in the accounts about the past. And well, 
there were very different futures in the Hispano-American histories. We should understand that uh, fear is an important issue here. Most of the historians that were writing histories were very fearful about the future. And that is common to the political elites in the 19th century, that there was an enormous uncertainty about the future. There were a lot of processes that were making uh, people and, and obviously these uh, political elites to feel uncomfortable and to feel insecure about what was going to happen. The geopolitical struggle, the emergence of new powers as the United States, the democratization of society. So fear was an important ingredient. And for example, we have a very conservative dimension. For example, it's very interesting to know the, the books of Ferrer de Couto. Ferrer, Ferrer de Couto was a a conservative Spanish politician and historian that, that lived for a lot of time in New York with a newspaper called El Español that used to support slavery in the United States and Cuba. And he construed a, a historical account about uh, the Hispano-American past defending that the um, the issues that characterized the history the imperial history of Spain were Catholicism uh, tradition uh, aristocratic government and he imagined that uh, in the pr the present was determined by the struggle of the Anglo-Saxon race that was characterized as the race of democracy of liberal values of immorality immor immorality mm -hmm. sorry and against the Hispanic civilization. So constructing this history, his history about the American Spanish Empire, he projected a future and he imagined that the United States, because of their democracy, will be finally, finally weakened by that democracy, will have a lot of social struggles and that then Spain could uh, make an alliance with the Hispano-American republics and invade the United States. He imagined that it was the only solution for the Hispanic race in the world to survive, to invade the United States, to make an alliance with the slave owners in the South, and to construct Atlantic, Hispanic and pro-slavery society, to maintain the traditional mode of life of the Hispanic countries and of the Hispanic society. Mm -hmm. So he projected a world in which Anglo-Saxon democracy was defeated by the traditional Hispanic values that were revived by, by this, precisely by the, by the alliance of the Hispanic people against the, the Anglo-Saxon invader, you know? So that, one, that was one of the, uh, of the of the first prognosis, of the first utopias of a conservative Spanish elite. But then we have liberal utopias, obviously. We have, for example, uh, Rafael Maria de Labra or, or Rafael Altamira, that they imagine a new democratic confederation of Hispanic, uh, of Hispanic states that would maintain a community of language, a community of, of race, a community of culture and of values, and will be transformed in a democratic and republican international force that will be in a kind of alliance with the United States. But anyway, the, the reunification 
of the Hispanic peoples was always present in that in that utopy. Mm-hmm. But the difference from one utopy to another were precisely because of the different political values and the different political projects of Spanish elites. Okay, so what we've outlined so far are various different visions of what Hispano America could be, uh, depending on the different political persuasions of, of these various writers. So I'm wondering if if there was anything that, that ever came out of this idea. In other words, does the idea of Hispano America does it still exist? Or has it kind of faded away since we never did see the the unification um, of of these different countries? Yes, there are a lot of authors that say that the Hispano-American idea was a failure because they obviously didn't achieve the, the reunification of the Hispanic family as metaphorically they they invoked them. Uh, but I think that is a misperception because obviously they didn't achieve the goal, the goal but they provoked political actions. And if we see uh, under these ideas there were a lot of organizations, associations and also uh, state institutions that organized their policy, their international policy or their commercial, cultural and even intellectual policies around this idea having this idea in their mind. For example, we have associations as the, as the Unión Iberoamericana or as the, as the Ateneo also, as the Casa de América in Barcelona, la Sociedad, the Sociedad Colombina Unuense, a lot of associations that were used for intellectuals but also by, mostly by companies but also by, by some groups of interest to establish networks with Latin American partners and with Latin American allies. And yes, it has had a lot of relevance. And don't forget that during Franco's regime, all those ideas were the ones that determined his international policy. If we study the institutions that Franco created for the international relations, most of them were oriented to Latin America and used the language of the defenders of a Hispano-American community. We have the Council of Hispanidad. At the same time, they created the Museo de America. A lot of different institutions that tried to establish networks with some Latin American elites that also wanted to share this discourse. Because don't forget that in Latin America there were also Hispanic movements. A lot of time defended by an elite that also was fearful of indigenous movements or of the international power of the United States. 
So we have also a very strong Hispanic discourse in America Latina and a lot of support sometimes for the Hispano-American uh, accounts of the past in Spain. Obviously we have also conflicts and we have also intellectuals that completely refuse uh, the Hispano-Americanist policies of Spain, as for example Fernando Ortiz in Cuba or Mariategui in Peru. When we talk about the perpetuation of these ideas, I think that it's obvious. If you analyze the public discourse of the Spanish government during all the 20th century, including democracy, including the government of the Socialist Party with uh, Felipe González and the and the celebration of the fifth uh, centenary of the discoverment of America, you will see the, the old ideas of the Hispano-Americanism of the 19th century. Obviously, it's liberal version, but if you see the, the proclamations and the discourses of the Ibero-American conference of the 90s, you will see that they vindicate a historical community of culture, of language and of values, that have projected an united spirit uh, from the dissolution of the Catholic monarchy to the, to the present moment. And that the future of all the Hispanic world is depending on this union that identify us against indifference from the Anglo-Saxon world. So, the ideas have been very strong have been used for uh, by a lot of political actors have been also very strong in the Spanish Academy that have constructed a historiographical Americanism and they converted America in an object of a study that was completely related with the national being and with the national history so academically, politically, economically also because we, we shouldn't forget, it's the same if you see the Ibero-American Conference of the 90s, well, they were a good political forum for Spain. The, the actor that was more beneficiated by that was the Bank Santander, for example, that used this kind of discourse and this kind of political platforms for making a lot of networks and, in, and investments in America Latina. And nowadays it's, it's one of the most important banks in, in Latin America. So we, we should explore these connections between the construction of a Hispano-American imaginary and the construction of economic, political and diplomatic relationships. I think it's, it's very important, it's, it's fundamental for understanding the, 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 the construction of the, of the relationship between Spain and, and Latin America nowadays. And is there any resistance to these ideas in Spain right yeah, now? Yeah, obviously, obviously. As you know, our national celebration is the 12th of October. We have the Dia de la Hispanidad. That is the, the name that Franco gave it, okay? And it's very, well, it's very obvious when you assist to one of these celebrations that there are political actors in Spain that don't agree with that celebration. We have also a very a strong tendency of a post-colonial and anti-colonial theories and intellectuals and movements that defend that Spain committed a genocide. And normally they are left-wing uh, parties or left-wing actors 
and normally there are the actors that are putting into question the legitimacy of the uh, Spanish national state because we because we shouldn't forget that since Primo de Rivera the legitimacy of a Spanish state and the idea of America was very well was patrimonialized was acquired by the Spanish state so they conceive that imperial narrative as related with the political project of a unitary Spanish state. So, for example, we have a lot of contestation from the nationalist movements in Catalonia that they, that attack Spanish colonialism and they want to relate the colonization of America with the colonization of Catalonia by Spanish people. So we have also critical discourse. But this critical discourse a lot of times assume the same language. I mean, they also understand that Spain was a national state that colonized uh, to an American backward world or to an American idyllical world of Indians that didn't realize what was happening. So it's very interesting also to analyze how the anti-colonial discourse maintained the colonial framework of thinking that was constructed by nationalists and imperialist historians and intellectuals during the 19th century. Well, thank you so much, uh, Rodrigo, for, for coming on the program. I, I think that our discussion today is really important for giving people greater vision of, as you say, this very pervasive idea of Hispano America, but to historicize that and, and see the, how it's developed over, over time. Thank so, you very much for inviting me. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias, the Spanish History Podcast. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to follow us on Facebook so that you can be notified of new episodes. Thank you.